welcome to the Film Illiterates Podcast, your home for uninformed, unfiltered, ill-advised movie talk. I'm your host, Joe Campbell, and joining me today, as always, are Alex Patton. Hello. And Nathan Stone. Which translates to something like, shut up, Joe, let's uh, get on with this. Oh my, oh my gosh, I was, and then somebody interrupted me with uh, their... With their... my special, like, uh, Rosetta Stone uh, linguistics. Exactly. In... <laughs> Your, your 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 Google Translate Japanese. <laughs> Actually, I don't even know if that was really Japanese. I think it was just gibberish. Today is uh, our new our next pick a flick episode, where one of us on the team chooses a movie for all three of us to review. This week it was Alex's turn, and he chose the uh, anime Jinro, the Wolf Brigade. Yep. And so we'll be talking about that in the second half of the episode. Uh, but before we get into that, let's talk about what we've all been watching on our own recently. So, Alex, since it's your pick of flick this week, what have you been watching, reading, listening, whatever you're doing out there these days? Okay, for watching, uh, I got the new season of anime started up, so I've been trying to keep up on a few series. I started the sequel to Yuru Camp, or Laidback Camp, called Room Camp, a previous series laidback camp is one of my favorites it's probably the most comfy anime that you can really watch it's just a bunch it's about a bunch of like high school girls who go camping and it's super sweet and relaxing and fun so i was excited for the kind of uh, sequel to it um and it seems it's first episode's good it's a lot shorter whereas your camp was the full like 20 minute episodes this one's just a few minutes long so would have loved to have more, but I'll take what I can get as far as this goes. Um, the other one I was watching is called Asteroid in Love. Seems pretty nice so far. It's about a couple high school girls who they had once met while out camping. Um, and then years later, they meet again. They join the uh, like a Earth Sciences Club. And it's kind of about their just kind of reconnecting and really the main focus is they want to discover an asteroid or a star discover one of those and name it after one of the uh the characters um it's just sweet light it's it's actually pretty funny too uh it's got a good bit of humor a few of the characters are really good uh the other one i've been watching uh is called somali in the forest spirit this one's a little harder or a little bit different um, it's about a forest spirit who finds a like a young human girl in well in the forest and you kind of get stuck with taking care of her and in the world that they live in um, it's a world where um, humans and monsters um, had previously coexisted but after time the humans, became what would that be like speciesist i guess you could say um and the two kind of factions ended up warring with the monsters um winning and because of that there aren't really much humans anymore um or if they are they're like i said hidden away so you can't really find them um and so it's about the mostly about the forest spirit taking care of the little girl and trying to get her back to the humans, all while sort of protecting her and hiding her identity as a human. 
yeah, like I said, it, it's good. The The characters are really cool. It's part of what seems like is going to be a main theme of the series um, is the four spirits apparently normally emotionless. Um, they, they, they literally just can't feel emotion. And I think one of the kind of recurring themes of the series is going to be how this, the little girl kind of slowly starts invoking emotion and, and whatnot from the, from the spirit as, as he's trying to like take care of her and essentially just be like a father for her. So it's essentially like from what little I've seen of Mandalorian, it's the anime version of the Mandalorian and baby Yoda. Yeah. That's actually, I was going to comment on is it sounds like it's (laughs) like kind of like the reversal of what we've seen in the Mandalorian. Um, Gollum is, is the automaton uh, protector of this baby human, right? Like the yeah. Somali is what her name is? Yes, mm-hmm. that's her name. Um, and the animation looks really great, too. It's really pretty. So I'm, I'm stoked about it. But I'm uh, excited to see more. Um, but as far as anime goes, that's all I've been watching. Um, still playing more Destiny. Uh, there's a <clears throat> there's a new thing going on right now, actually. There's a uh, puzzle that the community is trying to solve. Um, and Bungie is known for kind of like having like secrets and puzzles and like different little explorable things and and whatnot but as far as destiny goes this has been one of their biggest puzzles um the previous one being called uh niobe labs which was actually about a year ago this time that it was released um and this one uh don't really have a name for it because it was kind of just a surprise drop like all of a sudden, last uh, this past Wednesday, I think it was found, and people have just been literally, people have been working on this twenty four seven since it was released. Literally working in shifts. What they're trying to do is create this huge jigsaw puzzle. But the thing is, they aren't given like the pieces to just put it all together. They literally have to take screenshots from a point in the game in like the special mission that was released. Take the information from the screenshots, translate those that information into possible jigsaw puzzle pieces, and then put the, pu- the puzzle together. They, they've been working at this for like nearly three days now. And I think there were maybe last I checked, maybe like they think they think they I think they got a pretty big discovery recently, so 60 70% done but it's it's cool to watch this kind of stuff just because there's a huge community like response to it and everyone's getting together to pull screenshots and share the information and work on this massive like spreadsheet that they had going I think I was watching one streaming last night he was talking about they had like 1400 different lines in their spreadsheet um, so they're literally pulling thousands of screenshots and, and like bits of information all over just to try to make this thing. So but you said fourteen hundred like spreadsheet lines just yes. for screenshots. Wow, mm-hmm. I don't know yeah, how extensive good. these uh, scavenger hunts get, but that's a lot of time just to look through screenshots. Yeah, I think this is the this is the longest one so far. Like I mentioned, the previous one, Niobe Labs, I think that one took about. Um, I want to say maybe it was like somewhere like 30 hours, 30 plus hours or so. 
Um, whereas this one, yeah, it's, it's gone on like nearly three, about three days now. I mean, I did, is there usually a deadline for these or do they put like a time oh, limit? No, it's just you figure it out when you figure it out. Okay, so it's basically almost like Ready Player One in a way where it's like if you guys crack the code, great. Oh. Otherwise, it'll be 10 years from now. Yeah, uh, I mean, essentially, yeah, that's that's literally what it is. With IOB Labs as well, they Bungie didn't give out, the development studio didn't give out any hints. And so I hope it's the same for this one. Just like if nobody figures it out, it'd be one of those like cool mysteries that just remains in Destiny's history forever. There's like no one figured this out, figured out exactly what this means, but it's it's going to get done. And then someone named Parzival will come around and just uh, start cracking the codes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but um, essentially, that's what I've been up to. Just a bit of anime, a lot of Destiny, the usual. That's awesome. Very, uh, very on brand Alex there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> of course. Maybe you should go watch a movie. You know, watch a movie. Go watch one. You know. Well, an- an- anime or movies? I mean, some animes are movies. No, no, it has to be a movie. Come on, just go to a theater again. <laughs> no, Get out of your I'm element, man. <laughs> go see, go see Doolittle. I hear that's great. <laughs> no, oh, oh, I don't want it. No, I mean, I like the. I remember as a kid, I liked the original one. Oh, the Eddie Murphy one. Eddie Murphy one. Yeah, that one was kind. Of, I, I mean, I liked Eddie Murphy. But... That's not the original. What do you mean by the old oh, one? Yeah, yeah. you don't talk about Rex Harrison, man. <laughs> I know. Let's get old okay, school. Okay, the first cause... one I saw then. <laughs> that's the original to me. I mean, it's a reboot of a reboot, so in a way, yeah, yeah I guess. Referring to the Eddie Murphy, Dr. Doolittle as the original Dr. Doolittle. Get out of here. Hey, that's classic Eddie Murphy. I don't know what you're talking about, guys. (laughs) All right, Nate. What uh, what have you been up to lately? All right. Well, uh, to get prepared for this uh, talk about, you know, a classic anime movie, I decided to actually catch on a little bit of anime myself. Um, So I had the chance of going seeing the new anime film by uh, Makoto Shinaki called Weathering With You. The summer of his high school freshman year, Hodaka runs away from his remote island home to Tokyo and quickly finds himself pushed into his financial and personal limits. The weather is unusually gloomy and rainy every day and as if to suggest his future. Uh, He lives his days in isolation but finally finds work as a writer for a mysterious occult magazine. Then one day, Hodaka meets Hinda on a busy street corner. This bright and strong-willed girl possesses a strange and wonderful ability, the power to stop the rain and clear the skies. So this is from the same um, director and animator of the film Your Name, which when it first came out, it was a huge hit in Japan. Like it was actually probably the highest well-reviewed and well-received anime films that ever existed. And so he's already beginning to get a following for his style um so i saw this with a couple of friends uh it premiered like at one of our theaters and uh it was nice um how it fits with like you know compared to your name i think your name is obviously a lot better this one is just as good um i was not expecting it to be a love story about global warming literally that's what it kind of comes down to is uh you know this overall like you know environmental message about you know we're not denying that you know global warming is an issue it's causing strange weather patterns especially in the story you know they are in tokyo where it's raining every day in summer like excessively amounts of it like monsoon levels like it's flooding and then it starts snowing so it's no doubt that this guy is trying to create like some kind of a an interesting message about global warming i think his message at the end is very positive and it's not leaning to one side or the other um but the the story is very quaint it's cute i don't think it's as uh i think this guy what he likes to do is he likes to present you know very refreshing stories and very you know 
uh, heart wrench stories that don't have to dabble too much in a lot of just gritty. But it gets pretty heavy. Like there's some intense moments in here, but when they weren't going too far with that, I was like, oh, okay. So we got back into like, you know, the cute element of, you know, this kid meeting this girl and them having a, a romance and a bonding experience. But uh, it kind of dabbled a little bit in the folklore that Japan is kind of like used to with what is called like these uh, weather maidens. Um, I won't go into too much about it because that's kind of, you know, something that is a huge, you know, spoiler for the story. But uh, it was, overall, it was good. Um, not Like I said, it's I guess a lot of people are comparing it to Your Name, which I say go in, don't doing that. Uh, just take it as it is, and it's a very nice story. Okay. Yeah. I still need to see Your your Name, uh, but I've heard nothing but great things about it, so that makes me interested to check out some of these uh, these other movies too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's it's worth seeing. Both of them are. All right, uh, so the other movie I ended up seeing was um, one that's getting talked about a lot right now, especially with the war season, is Sam Mendes' War Epic 1917. During World War I, two British soldiers, Lance Corporal Schofield and Lance Corporal Blake, receive seemingly impossible orders. In a race against time, they must cross over into enemy territory to deliver a message that could potentially save 6,000 of their fellow comrades, including Blake's own brother. I'm going to just say this right now, guys. Holy shit, this movie. <laughs> no, no, I'm serious. Yeah. Okay, I completely spaced and forgot that this was trying to capture the whole seamless one take for a war yeah. epic. And holy cow, does it work. I mean... Well, I mean, you got you got Roger Deakins, right? Yeah, no, and I honestly, I think yeah. his whole idea of like, oh, I want to do this all in one take seamlessly and actually construct it around that was his idea because... Hot damn, this was intense. Like for the first uh, 20 minutes, I'm holding my breath until something happens. Um, and honestly, I think this is just uh, a sheer just cinematic experience and a true work of genius from just both Sam Mendes and Roger Dakins, as well as everyone on this uh, project. This is, um, I'm going to say this, guys, right now. I think this is going to start competing with Saving Private Ryan as far as like one of the best war epic films to ever come out in the past uh, century. This is definitely taking everything we've seen in the past 100 years as far as like everything from All Quiet on the Western Front to Saving Private Ryan to Dunkirk, all those elements from a technical as well as storytelling aspect, putting them into one movie and just executing to its full potential. I never, I didn't expect it to be this good and I can see why it's, if it sweeps the awards this year, um, I think it fully deserves it. Because this was one movie where I was curious just to see how far they would get. Because in these kinds of films, you either have to compensate a technical aspect and, you know, compromise acting. But this has everything on a technical level, as well as the acting is just so raw and genuine and good. I was pulled all the way through. There wasn't anything in this that I felt there were plot holes or there were problems with it. And the, both of the actors that we're following, they're not big name actors. And I think that brings something very uh, interesting to it. Just seeing these two young lads witness all of this and them experience it and seeing, us, seeing their real reactions to this. It's, if anyone has not seen this yet, please go to your local theater, buy a ticket, and enjoy the next two hours of seeing something that you will probably not see again. Or maybe you will see again, because this might set the bar now for every war epic from here on out. It's like every film might try to capture 
the intensity and the suspense that this movie did. You know, I've been uh, meaning to check this one out, especially since I've, all, all the buzz around it, around it I've heard has been nothing but good. And I, I can imagine that the one shot look really adds to the intensity of each scene. Um, yeah. So I've been planning, planning on going to go see it, but I'll be honest, Underwater is also in theaters, and I really want to go see that too. Oh, so, I, I mean, I mean, both are going to probably be good, but I think, if anything, 1917, uh, Joe, I think is before the Oscars show up, give it a chance because this is one where I held my breath for a good half hour of the movie, and I wasn't expecting it. And, and it's just one of those things where you get completely immersed in. And I don't know, maybe the one take might be a, a game killer for a lot of people. It might be a game killer for you. You might be realizing oh they they really should have done a cut here but i think just the entire uh courage the entire just gumption behind this was just really good and i don't know it just said a lot of great things about just war and the boys who serve us in general so no yeah i'll absolutely have to check this out so that's all i watched Alrighty, so I'm I'm gonna take my my slot here to showcase a director that I think not enough people are talking about. I think everybody knows about one movie by this guy, but I'm slowly discovering that he has an entire filmography of drop dead perfect movies. And so I'm gonna talk about three movies that I watched this week from director Lam Nai Choi or Lam Nai Choi, who's the director of Ricky O, the story of Ricky. Like like everybody knows Ricky O. This is one of the the best cult movies of all time, one of the most over-the-top, wonderful, super violent movies ever made. But this guy has a whole backlog of movies that just nobody knows about. Or if they do, it's just a very niche kind of like a cult thing. Uh, so the first one I'm going to talk about here is called The Seventh Curse from 1986. A young heroic cop in the jungle of Thailand attempts to rescue a beautiful girl from being sacrificed to the worm tribe she belongs to. As a result, the cop is damned with seven blood curses, which burst through his leg periodically. When the seventh bursts, he will die. But Betsy, the beauty he saved, stops the curse with an antidote that lasts only one year. So, on the advice of Wisely, played by Chow Yun-Fat, he heads back to Thailand to find a permanent cure. Action ensues as the cop and cohorts battle the evil sorcerer of the Worm Tribe, a hideous bloodthirsty baby-like creature and Old Ancestor, a skeleton with glowing blue eyes that transforms into a monster that is a cross between Rodan and the alien from Alien. So hold on, you said, so these seven deadly sins come out of his leg? There, there, there is, so it's, he, it's, it's called Seven Curses, and once every 24 hours, uh, basically a, a part of his leg explodes. <laughs> Just a part, a part. Yeah, 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 it's like, it's, it's, it's almost like an explosion of blood out of like a section of his leg. And it one happens every every twenty four hours, and once the seventh once the seventh explosion hits, it's gonna kill him. So what does he do? Like hobbling on one leg or a peg leg that he makes out? No, of he's like okay. That? He's okay. It's just you know it's an explosion of blood, and he's like, all right, I, I can walk this off. <laughs> yeah. This this movie is incredible. It's it's basically if Indiana Jones, it, 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 it's Indiana Jones in the Temple of Doom. If Indiana Jones was Rambo. So it's the, it's, oh gosh. Okay, I'm liking this. You sold me already. Can. Where do I get this movie? You can watch this on Amazon Prime right now. I'm going to go right there right now. I'm probably like, going to be... That's what I'll probably be doing for the next rest of this review is just watching that movie. <laughs> I, 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 I would not blame you if you did because this, this movie is great. So this movie, it isn't like Riccio in that, you know, Riccio was kind of this this comic book movie with a lot of super violence, this guy in prison. This this is like a straight up fantasy adventure action horror movie. 
uh, with these these characters kind of traveling through this jungle. They find this this uh, ancient temple, all these kind of things. Only uh, there's an extended sequence where one of them is just running around with a machine gun, basically blowing away <laughs> anybody gets in their way. But there's also, I mean, there's there, there, there's a, a zombie, which is a wonderful puppet effect, which is bobbing around and attacking people and doing kung fu. Uh, they have a a uh, the uh, the the people in the temple have a child mashing machine, which is just throwing kids into a pit and it <laughs> crushes them in concrete. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm just getting a visual from Tropic Thunder when Ben still like flings the kid off his shoulders. I'm just imagine all these kids just being thrown in like a picture. Yeah, more or less. More or less. This movie this movie is is the most wonderfully over-the-top uh fantasy horror action film. And I highly recommend anybody watch. If you liked Riccio, you'll probably get a kick out of this. It is it's it's a different flavor of the same sort of movie as Riccio. It's like, oh, you want you want Riccio transposed into a different kind of genre. We got that, and apparently this is put this is based on a book series. So uh, I, I would not oh. be surprised. Unfortunately, this guy tends to base a lot of these movies on like mangas or books that he finds. Yeah, uh, the next one I'm going to talk about is uh, a movie he made in 1992. So he made this one right after he made Riccio. It was the last movie he ever made before he just kind of disappeared. He stopped directing, and no one knows why. Uh, and that is from 1992 called The Cat. Uh, the synopsis is a cat from outer space teams up with a young girl and an old man to fight a murderous alien that possesses people. Okay, you uh, before this, Joe, you had shared with me a couple of screenshots and like still frames of this. And I'm seeing a cat fling a guy like 180 over its shoulder onto the ground. It's, 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 it's not even a guy. It's a dog. It's, it's a dog. It's, okay. A cat, I... a cat and a dog get into a kung fu fight in a junkyard. Is this like like your normal like kind of like house cat? Yes, yes. Well, well, well okay. The house, the, the cat is possessed by an alien because these okay, aliens like possess yeah, people. But like, it but, looks like a normal house, like right, exactly. What the? And for most of the movie, it is it is just just like a normal cat walking around unless they need to do crazy stuff, in which case it's a puppet. What? <laughs> and 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 the uh, the dog it fights is just like a normal dog. It's not it's not an alien possessed dog or anything like that. It's just a normal dog that's been sent to, to, to help find the cat. But this 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 movie is okay. So if uh, the seventh curse was Temple of Doom with Rambo in it, the mm-hmm. cat is like Terminator Two by way of the Blob mixed with the Thing, like John Carpenter is the Thing. Because the whole the whole point of this movie is that is that they're the cat and 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 the girl who's also an alien are trying to get back to their planet the whole movie, and they're being chased by other aliens which also possess people that are trying to stop them. Uh, but the the aliens that the aliens that possess the bad guys are played by big blob effects basically like like nineteen eighties version of the blob. Uh, so you get tons of great sci-fi, weird, gooey creature effects. I mean, like this movie has all of it. It's got stop motion. It's got animatronics. It's got people getting their faces ripped off by blob monsters. Uh, it's got blobs the size of buildings. It's got a cat doing a kung fu fight with a dog. Um, it's got a guy who jumps in the air to kick a propane tank and shoot it with a shotgun. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> what the hell? Like if Ricky O didn't exist, the cat would be uh, Lam Nai Choi's his his masterpiece oh of movie. Oh my gosh! Can, wow. can you have, 
Can you imagine that being on your resume? It's like, what is the greatest thing you've ever directed? Well, I did this thing called The Cat. Maybe oh, this movie is just it. such a joy to watch because it also has it also has a lot of that uh, '80s, you know, gore effects with like skeletons, you know, the skeletons being thrown around. At one point, there's a corpse in the sewer gets possessed and it's just running around. <laughs> Holy shit! Um, this, this movie is much more difficult to find than uh, The Seventh Curse. But if you can find it, I highly recommend it because it is a blast. The Seventh Curse is more like fantasy. The cat is more like bizarro science fiction. And that's just kind of this guy's brand in general is over-the-top spectacle and the a blend of different kinds of effects. And there's, there's just such an energy to his movies. Uh, I saw someone mention something about uh, one of his movies where he said that the effects aren't great but they're shot with such enthusiasm that it doesn't matter. That's how I feel about all of his stuff is that it, it, it doesn't matter how goofy the effects look. He's shooting the hell out of them and running with it. And it makes it so much fun. I mean, at the end of the day, that's what it is. It's like, you know, if I get you laughing or cheering or grossed out, that's, that's what I was achieving with this. So as cheap or as goofy as it is, let's go with it. Yeah. Uh, and then the last one I'm going to talk about is uh, kind of another another flavor of Lemni Choice called Peacock King from 1988. Uh, Peacock King, uh, brief synopsis, coerced by the evil witch Raga, Asura, the hell virgin, attempts to unlock the four earth holes that lead to the gates of hell. Together, Raga aims to control the earth. However, two monks skillful in magical powers set off on a journey to the city's to obstruct Ashura from unlocking the gates and stop Raga. Otherwise, not, not only will control of the Earth be at stake, but the King of Hell will, will resurrect and darkness will overcome the world. This is basically his fantasy epic. This is set in the 80s, um, and this one is, I mean, the closest thing I can think of is something like Lord of the Rings, but that's a very bad comparison because it's not like Lord of the Rings. It's basically, it's... it's uh, it's, it's an epic journey where the, these characters are trying to stop a big evil thing from happening. Trying to stop the big evil guy from coming. And the whole movie, and, and there's, there's, there is little adventures here and there. They have to go from one point, you know, point A to B to C. So it's very procedural in that. And then at the end, there's a great big uh, climactic effects driven kind of showdown, you know, with giant things coming out of the ground. And it's all very epic. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's still very silly and, and still very on brand and, and it's very 80s. I mean, it, it has all this grand magical stuff and stuff about prophecies and we have to close these gates before the king of hell comes through them. Uh, but at this, but <laughs> it also has these characters going to like, you know, an, an, an 80s club and just jamming out for a little bit. That's <laughs> what you do. You don't they got to decompress somehow. We don't have any what is mages or uh uh sorry bards like with lutes and harps no you just go to 80s club yeah exactly and uh th this movie stars uh a an actor who i'm slowly starting to become more familiar with i i, I believe it's uh yun yun biao yun biao uh he is one of these young kung fu stars along the lines of Jackie Chan, Bruce Lee. I think he even uh, he's worked with Jackie Chan in quite a few of his movies also. And he was in a movie that I watched recently called Writing Wrongs, which is kind of a big, fun action film. And he is the heart and soul of this movie because he plays one of two monks that are 
basically go on this quest to stop Hell King from coming through. And he's kind of the wisecracking, cocky, young, modern monk. And then the other guy he's paired with is the stoic, serious, we must take everything seriously and spiritually monk. And they play off each other very well. And it's, 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 they're kind of the heart and soul of the movie, make it very entertaining to watch. And on top of that, you also got all these, these great effects, uh, like when they face off against kind of a, a, a hell witch that turns into the most terrifying 80s creature effect I've ever seen, I think. It's like, it's, 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 well, it's not so much the creature effect is terrifying, but the transformation sequence is horrific. Uh, it's like this woman starts screaming and she turns into this thing that's like a, imagine like a demigorgon from uh, Stranger Things. Only the front of the face is is like a human face split in half from top to bottom with rows of teeth. And then she kind of contorts and has talons. It, it's very hard to describe. I mean, that kind of sounds like Large Marge from Pee-wee's uh, Big Adventure. So No, no, no. It's it's, it's worse than that. Worse than oh, Large worse than Marge. that. Worse than Large no, Marge. Yeah. No, no, yeah. No, uh, yeah. Um, with this movie, actually, it was interesting because up to a certain point, I was thinking, like, like this could almost pass off as, like, 80s family-friendly uh, in that, you know, like, oh, it's still got some scary stuff in it, but, you know, there's not, like, people getting ripped in half or decomposed, like, in his other, in his other movies. Not, not Nothing too monstrous. And then that scene happened, I'm like, oh, okay, we'll throw that out the window. <laughs> but this movie, it's it's, it's, it's not as, um, uh, I mean, it's not on the same level as, say, The Seventh Curse, The Cat, or Riccio, but it's still a, a damn fine fantasy 80s fantasy movie is still a lot of fun i still highly recommend it if you can find a copy of this movie anywhere uh so yeah those those three movies those are the three movies i talked about uh lam night joy needs to be a bigger name in in the cult community i saw someone describe him as basically the sam raimi of hong kong and i agree with that 100 percent I don't know. That's I. Th I think this guy's uh, even surpasses Sam Raimi as far as just style and just humor and entertainment. He's like if Sam Raimi stuck to only making movies on the same caliber as Evil Dead Two his entire career. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what I've watched recently. Well, I have to admit, man, you got a lot of guts to uh, talk about this guy's movies. I I I want to sing his name to the world. Everyone needs to needs to see these if they can. Uh, they all need to get Blu-ray transfers or or proper uh north american releases because I'm, I'm a little upset that you didn't get the ricky oh oh it's, it's been so long since i've seen ricky it's, it's on my list to rewatch now uh but it's been been quite a while i feel like this is kind of like we owe this movie like a, a film illiterates review just all oh, i would love us. that we should do one we should do one ricky would be that. perfect yeah uh now with that let's move on to our main review which is jinro the wolf brigade once upon a time there was a girl who hadn't seen her mother in seven years. In the woods, on her way to her mother, she met a wolf. The wolf asked her whether she'd be taking the path of pins or the path of needles. When the girl said that she was going to take the path of pins, the wolf hurried off down the path of needles and ate up the little girl's mother. So, what happened to the girl who took the path of pins to go home? 
Tales of beasts getting involved with humans always end on a bad note. Jinro, The Wolf Brigade, from 1999, directed by Hiroyuki Okiura. A member of an elite paramilitary counterterrorism unit becomes traumatized after witnessing the suicide bombing of a young girl and is forced to undergo retraining. However, unbeknownst to him, he becomes a key player in a dispute between rival police divisions as he finds himself increasingly involved with the sister of the girl he saw die. Uh, so this is an anime from 1999. Alex, you... Pick this movie for us for your pick a flick. Yeah. Uh, tell us more. Tell us why. How you came into this decision. Well, it was one I've wanted to see for a little while now. I had heard about it a while back and like seen like screenshots and pictures of it. I think one of the reasons why I kind of wanted to pick it was it didn't seem like it was that talked about. Like compared to other like anime movies, um, kind of at the time, like Ghost in the Shell was released just a few years before or even like modern going into like more modern stuff it seemed like it was overlooked but well respected by the people who knew about it so i wanted to check it out and see if it kind of lived up to a bit of the uh, very small hype that there, there was about it um honestly one of the one of the reasons why i actually chose this as well was i saw a clip of i think it was the i think it was the golden globes uh it was the director of parasite talking about movies and he was he was talking about if you can get past the, you know, one inch tall barrier of subtitles, you can. It, there's a whole world of new movies to explore, um, and so that kind of actually, I I really liked that that quote. I think that's really cool. Um, I was paraphrasing it, but I thought that was great. Um, you know, as someone who's into anime, and I pretty much only watch like subtitles and whatnot, don't like them into dubs, but um, I thought that was a really good quote. And that if you can just you know get past the subtitles there's a whole bunch of great stuff to watch and so that's what partially influenced me in, in picking uh Jinro as well now the kind of sad part about that yeah is... I, I was gonna actually say that as well as like as much as i would have loved to try and find a the actual like uh, japanese dub version <laughs> we only were able to find the english dub yeah um yeah, that's the sad part about it. But, you know, one thing I was going to comment on that, Alex, is that, you know, I, I also occasionally will watch uh, animes that are still in their original Japanese dub and are subtitled. And I will say that there is something about just the language and it's like authentic, like, you know, origin that just gives the film a certain flavor that, you know, something that's dubbed in English cannot deliver you get a better feel of what the movie is as a whole with that kind of sound well uh, this will be an interesting conversation because i i did watch it in japanese oh um, okay <laughs> speaking getting out of your comfort zone there we go yeah so this i i'm, I'm interested to see if anything uh change in translation in our conversation yeah I've, I've heard that the um english dub is actually pretty good i, I kind of read up on about it yeah. It's decent. Like I, I as think as far as dubs go. Honestly. Yeah, I mean, as far as dubs go, and I guess like I don't know when they actually did the more recent English dub, but I guess like the one thing I was kind of like finding in the English dub is that they were very stoic and very um, lethargic in their deliveries. Like there wasn't any energy, and there wasn't any just character or just feeling in it. However, that's something I might actually comment on later, and it is that. Maybe that's exactly how the characters are supposed to be delivered, is just being these very apathetic, very lethargic, very just stoic characters who are just so desensitized by this world that they live in. So 
I guess in a way, even if it was dubbed in any other language, it probably would have been the same way. Yeah, I, I do agree. Avoid violating the new constitution, which placed severe restrictions on military activity by the self-defense forces, and to dissuade the local police authorities from forming a national police force, the government chose an alternate path. With its activities limited to the capital, a new paramilitary force was established under the direct command of the National Security Committee. This was the birth of the Capitol Police organization. Highly mobile and heavily armed, the Capitol Police quickly expanded its power and declared itself the guardian of public order. Let's get into this movie a little bit because yeah. uh, uh, I was very surprised. Yeah. Just overall impressions. I enjoyed this movie. I think it's the sort of movie where I'll need to think on it. Uh, Alex, you had sent us uh, a couple of videos talking about, you know, diving into what the movie was about and the themes of the movie, which were actually very, very helpful to me after I watched it because there is a lot to unpack there. So, so our, our main character is this soldier uh, for the Japanese, I guess it's the Japanese military. No, it's a capital police. yeah it's a capital police especially one to kind of like suppress any like urban crimes or just any protests that are well that's where i got confused yeah. because there seems to be different sections like 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 he seemed more military but there's also a police force that watches over the local uh population yeah. so it, 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 i'm like I'm like, I'm like i wasn't sure if he was military brought into police people because there's a rebellion going almost sort of it, so this takes place after World War II, where Japan wasn't really allowed to beef up their military forces. So what they did to kind of circumvent that was create the Capitol Police. Um, and essentially, they're just a higher level police force. You have like the, you know, local police that you do see in the movie. And then you've got these guys, which are higher than like SWAT or whatever. But... So yeah, they're not, they aren't military. They are their own separate police force away from, you know, like local police. Okay, because a lot of the movie does deal with the fact that these these different levels of police forces kind of don't like each other and are al almost at war with each other. I mean, not, 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 not quite to that point, but they're, you know, you know, you have you have spies between them both, and they they, yeah. they don't like each other, and they're trying to circumvent each other, which I thought was interesting. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting hierarchy that it sets up, and actually, you know, Alex, something that you did bring up is that this is kind of like an alternative history of like, well, what if this happened after 1950s Japan? You know, after Hiroshima and after Japan was trying to get back on its feet again, like this is like an alternative situation of what could have happened. It is. It I guess it still counts as a bit of like a, a sci-fi, but it's still very much grounded in like reality and like a lot of it's not far fetched. Like, Oh, this would never happen. This is just someone's urban, like sci-fi fantasy. It's like, no, this is the, a lot of the set design. A lot of the, the technology that they use is very much similar to what they would have used at the time. Yeah. It is like an alternate history thing. So I guess it does kind of earn that like sci-fi tag, even up a, a little bit just through that, but everything else in the film, like you mentioned, the technology, characters setting it's all very grounded in reality so it's set as if after world war ii what if japan was occupied by germany instead of the u.s um and you do see um parts of like uh like german military and stuff like that like the special unit they carry 
MG42s, which is the German uh, machine gun. There's MP40s. There's like the Mauser. Yeah, their helmets uh, are very Germanic as well. Mm-hmm. There's Volkswagens, you know. Yeah, it does it, but it's all like like you mentioned. It's all very grounded in reality, which I which I think fits perfectly for the story that it's t- trying to tell. If it if it did kind of go a little bit more all out with the sci-fi stuff. I think it would have really lost the really the story that it's uh, that it's going for because it's not the story isn't like over the top and like crazy very just all about like talking and espionage and all that kind of stuff that that's that's one of the things I wanted to talk about was that this mm-hmm. movie going in uh, it wasn't the kind of movie I expected it to be based on yeah. just kind of the the the, the posters and uh, what little marketing I'd, I'd seen you know because yeah. that the the main character in his soldier outfit is kind of the main face of the movie and standing up there with the gun looking all you know cool and such but yeah. this, this movie is not about the sci-fi element this was a very introspective movie it's about characters changing what they're thinking there's a lot of quiet conversations there are many just kind of characters in rooms talking to each other it's it's a sort of movie where i i thought it was interesting that they picked it to be an anime because you could almost just shoot this as a live action movie with very little budget as it is that they, they kind of did yeah that's actually something i was going to comment on so the original guy who um uh invented this uh was this was actually originally part of a trilogy he wrote called the uh Kerberos trilogy and he actually had made two live action features based off of this one being the red spectacles and the other one being stray dogs which were all shot with live action and and actual real actors and real Japanese locations so I think he always he did mention he always wanted this to be done in live action however the studio uh, dictated and mandated that it should be done in anime now originally he was going to do this he got roped into doing originally Ghost in a Shell uh, from 1995, uh, and so he gave this t- project to Akira, uh, who you know decided to his best visibilities um, to do it in anime. But you look at the animation; it's still hand drawn, but there's still like a, a, a rigidness to it. It almost feels still very lifelike. There's nothing exaggerated in the characters' features. They very much look like real people. In fact, actually, I think someone almost thought this was rotoscoped, but it's not. This is still very hand-drawn, but it's that lifelike aspect to it um, and those setting pieces that it doesn't really go all out with anything extravagant. Like, I remember one of the things or the scenes that still stick out in my mind is a scene when they're in the park and she's swinging on the swing set and she points out this building that is uh, decrepitated or gone and she says well, what building do you think that was i almost thought to myself you know they could have shot that live action and it would have worked what, what if i ever said and i think that was his intention is to kind of keep it very much grounded in the reality of life yeah the anim- the animation is very beautiful because there aren't very many grand sweeping actions uh there isn't very much action in the movie in, in general mm-hmm. up until maybe like the last 10 minutes or so and the first yeah. the first 10 minutes also but a lot yeah. of the action is just kind of seeing people sit stand walk here there talk to each other and you start noticing little details in the movements uh for instance there was one scene where some characters characters are standing outside and it's raining uh not like downpouring but a little bit of rain and you can see just just the way they animate the uh, the splashes and the puddles in the background of the scene. It just, mm-hmm. I, I don't know, very subtle. Everything about this movie is subtle, except yeah. for maybe the the themes, which we'll get into in a little bit. I'll have more yeah. to say about that. But as far as the actual craft itself and the animation and the dialogue and the way everything is delivered, it's not a 
flashy movie, which I appreciated. So actually, Alex, I was going to actually ask you, was there a reason why the studio wanted this to be done in anime as opposed to live action? Because like the previous two movies of this trilogy were done live action. Uh, yeah, so it, so it seems like at the time, um, like with Ghost in the Shell kind of being released a little bit prior, um, the hype for animated movies was more prevalent than than kind of live action. So when the original credit creator of the saga was going to direct it, like you said, originally wanted to do in live action, then later changed to anim- to uh, anime and pulled the um, you know director for the film who was worked with him on Ghost in the Shell and Akira as well. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of uh, similarities I saw with Akira with just like dystopian themes, a lot of just like urban decrepitation, um, which is very relevant in this. So and there, is, there is one thing I wanted to note about the animation, and I've noticed this with other like older animation is there always seems to be like a glow to it it's hard to describe i don't know if you guys have picked up on it either but like a lot of the things will kind of just like they have a sort of glow to them where everything's not very like all the lines are not like fully straight cut and the colors kind of almost seep into each other a little bit i mean it's not enough that it throws me off and i don't like it it just it's something it was just something odd that i noticed i get what you're talking about and i noticed that too and i think i think a lot of it is because of two things one is the kind of dulled color palette the movie is very pastel a lot of browns and grays Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so it's easy Uh, to bleed for the colors to bleed into each other right and the, the the other thing is that a lot of these scenes take place during either in dark areas or with lots of mists and fog or smoke and a lot in some of these some of these sequences and the way that it's it, the it gets across the smoke is not necessarily by having you know hard lines with oh here's a cloud of smoke and here's a character and it, it's almost like a kind of like a mist in front of the camera like 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 they like dulled the lens before shooting the animation mm-hmm. yeah okay. i do want to bring up one more technical aspect that i really loved about the about the movie um and that's that's the sound design because whole boy is the sound design nice yeah like one of the things i was kind of like looking at with uh one of the reviews you had sent to us is that in particular with like the the special capital police with their guns like you listen to everything else like you know how you know the the bullets coming out of everyone's uh, guns are so like sharp and crisp whereas with them they're very dull and just heavy and they cause the most damage and it's the most terrifying thing is when you see those soldiers with their red spectacles and you see them load those guns you're just waiting to hear them unload those shells and it's just uh it's the, it's one of those dampening sounds that is very overpowering and it's, a, it's kind of like a motif that comes back again and again and again especially with the themes that it explores yeah that was literally one like my first notes that i took on the movie was just this the gunfire was so different because you had the MP40s and the and the pistols and whatnot from the from everyone else in the movie, and like you mentioned, it's very it's sharp, it's very kind of clearly defined. Um, but then you have the then you have the shots from the the sounds from the MGs that the uh, special unit carries, and it's just this thick, heavy, beefy sound to it. I don't know what an actual MG42 sounds like, so maybe that's kind of true to what it actually is. But I love that it was there was a difference between the two but like again with all with the rest of the sound design it's like every little thing like with him um if you say putting on the armor and whatnot you know there's so much little there's so many like little details that really kind of bring everything kind of to the forefront um so like yeah like i said the sound design is 
absolutely great in the movie. Uh, all the you know footsteps like running through the water and whatnot. It's yeah, it all just sounds so so cool. Should we get into spoilers and talk about the themes of this movie? Because I have some uh, some thoughts and I want to hear your guys' thoughts on that. Alrighty, and with that, we will be talking about spoilers for Jinro, the Wolf Brigade, from here on forward. So, so Alex, explain mm-hmm. this movie to me. <laughs> I don't know, man. <laughs> That's one of the so one of the reviews that I watched um, was made the special note of how this how Jinro doesn't doesn't care about your expectations i think i was like that was it was the review by demo and that's what that's also what i love about it is it just it takes its time getting through what it wants to get through and it will go its own way you just you sit along and stay for the ride and watch and it's going to take its own path um kind of going back into expectations for the movie i also kind of thought expected something different I thought it was going to be a lot more action oriented and action packed, and and to see it take this sort of direction, I like this direction more than if it had gone to, into more action. The action sequences are great, and but I think it's the scarcity of them that really highlights how like highlights them, um, and with everything else just being a lot of talking and a lot of you know just plot development and character development through dialogue. I love that aspect of it. While I was watching this movie, I thought this is a very Alex movie. It's it's, <laughs> it's a sad anime where where young people die and it's very sad and there's like <laughs> like anti character arcs. <laughs> um, watching it, I, I'll be honest. For most of this movie, I was kind of on the fence about the movie because mm-hmm. I I I liked the direction it took, but it almost felt a little too slow to me. Like, like I wasn't quite sure Fair. what it was driving at. And I was getting, I, 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 I'll admit, I was a little bit confused about the relationships between the different government factions and who was on what side and how they were playing each other. Uh, for instance, the girl who comes in, who claims to be the sister of the girl who dies at the beginning of the movie, uh, all of a sudden you find out that, no, wait, she is not actually the sister. She's playing him because they're yeah. trying to set him up and she's working for this other police force. Um, but I was confused about her relationship to the police force and was she was just someone that they found and was she yeah. working with the rebels? Because you have, you have basically, you have the rebels, you have this police force, and then you have the super police and they're all kind of at odds with each other. And the rebels don't really play into the movie all that much other than the very yeah. beginning. So yeah, I mean her, her like where she came from. Yeah. She was part of the, like rebel terrorists that was captured. She was one of the Red Riding Hoods that would carry um, supplies and bombs as well um, back and forth between the rebel forces. So she was captured and kind of conscripted to aid the local kind of police force, I believe it was. Um, And then 
she was given the direction to essentially trick Fusei into manipulate him. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean that that's kind of yeah that's kind of where where she came from. I wasn't too concerned as much with the I guess politics and um, rivalry between the police forces. Um, it the movie kind of did lose me a little bit at times. Um, as far as like I, I also was kind of like a bit confused as to where this was actually heading. Who was uh, who was who was playing who and yeah. and what 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 kind of what kind of a focus were we're actually getting? Mm-hmm. It, yeah, yeah. I, I I for a while I was just kind of mostly in the dark about like where are we actually going with not only this like relationship with uh, between Fusei and K, but like what's going on with higher ups of the police forces and you know kind of how that all plays into Fusei and K as well. Once upon a time, there was a little girl who hadn't seen her mother in seven years. She was forced to dress in iron clothes and was told, when you wear out those clothes, I'm sure you'll be able to go back to your mother. The girl rubbed her clothes on the wall, trying desperately to tear them. When they had finally been torn, She got some milk and bread, as well as a little cheese and butter, and set out for her mother's house. In the woods, she met a wolf, who asked her what she was carrying. So I'm going to drop my two cents into this. Um, The big thing I got from this, listening to what you guys have talked about what uh, several other reviewers have discussed about this movie. The big thing I got about this is, you know, what are people and governments willing to do just to maintain control? Uh, you take a look at the beginning, where we have this opening montage of how the Capitol Police first came into being, why they were brought in. And you're showing them in this very totalitarian light how they are just oppressing people. You know, there is no free will anymore. There's no free government. There's no citizenship. It's like it's you do what the government says. And then immediately after that, we go into the protests and we're seeing the protesters acting out in violence against the police. The police aren't doing anything. They're just, you know, trying to maintain some kind of a barrier in case anything should happen. But these protesters are throwing firebombs at them, you know, uh, nitroglycerin. And I think someone had made this comment that on both ends, no one is completely blameless and for what the way things are. And I see that in how the relationships happen in this. Everyone is trying to maintain control of how things are panning out, even if that means other people are playing each other, using each other, you know, switching sides. They're all doing this for the sake of having some kind of control. And, you know, whether that is the girl who is a Red Riding Hood who is switching from side to side, it's all about them trying to maintain some kind of a status quo, which I kind of saw within all the politics of going on with the other governments, with the other police, with this uh, special units police, is they were all just using each other just to maintain some kind of equilibrium. Yeah, or or, yeah, or to really kind of gain the upper hand so that their status quo is the status quo of everything else. 
Yeah, and maybe this was all part of the game that they were playing just to, you know, oppress any kind of uprising, any kind of anarchy that might have resulted from the protests that would have happened in the 1950s. Like, and maybe that was the reason why the director decided to tell this kind of a story in this kind of a trilogy, is to show this is what could have happened for, you know, Japan to maintain control the way it did. It could have been worse. It could have been like this. Maybe it would have been better. Who knows? But this kind of almost leads into the parallels that this makes with a certain fairy tale um, that keeps being brought up all the time, Red Riding Hood. But not specifically the Red Riding Hood that everyone else knows, but the Grimm's fairy tale version of it, which I thought was interesting because the way it starts off is the girl's narrating it. And I didn't even realize in the original story, uh, Red Riding Hood starts off in a suit or in clothes made of iron and that once she grows out of it, then she can return to her mother. Yeah, And it's so funny that you know, this is kind of also reflective of Fusei, who feels like a, a man trapped in iron, who wants to find something human about himself again, tries to find some kind of escape, only to kind of like, as we find out in the story of Red Riding Hood, that she gets tricked by the wolf and gets eaten up again. So it's almost like she starts off as a prisoner, finds some chance of escape, but then comes back as a prisoner. It's almost kind of like, no matter what you do, you're going to end up in the same shell that you first started in. Yeah, and that was that was an interesting point that one of the videos I sent uh, talked about, is Pusey is not like portrayed in, throughout the entire movie as Red Riding Hood. That kind of shifts and changes throughout um, who's kind of the victim and who's playing who and whatnot. And this almost kind of plays into our expectations going into the movie. We expect someone's going to play the victim. Someone's going to play the villain. Someone's going yeah. to be the oppressor, the predator who mm-hmm. is oppressing someone. And someone's going to be someone who's helpless. But as we kind of see, it kept switching around. He seemed to start off as a predator, then became a victim, only to decide at the very end to become the predator, just to maintain some kind of a balance. And it almost is saying that... Maybe that was something kind of going in. I had this expectation, like someone is going to have to be the villain in this. But there is no person who puts on that role. Everyone is switching their roles. Everyone's doing different things for themselves, for the government. And I guess that is something that breaks the mold of what we expect in movies is no one's completely one thing. Everybody is playing different hats. And at the end of the day, maybe no one is the villain. No one is the predator. No one is the victim. Maybe we're all just being people and we're all just playing our chips right now. Well, that, that, that's kind of the heart and soul of the movie. And that's what I found most interesting was that connection to red riding hood. Uh, I'll admit it was a little bit on the nose for me. Oh yeah. Uh, Yeah. Very. I mean, I mean, throughout the movie, they're quoting little red riding hood They're as they're telling the story, they're cutting to, parallel footage of the characters that they're kind of referring to in the in the red riding hood story but in the in in the the world of the movie uh but i thought it was interesting how initially he's portrayed as the wolf very obviously he's the 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 scary guy in the mask the way Mm -hmm. that he moves uh and the uh the young girl at the beginning is the, is little red riding hood and they even say like oh they're called red riding hoods and this is the wolf brigade and uh yeah. so it was it's very on the it was very blunt and very very obvious but it was also kind of interesting because over the course of the movie he the the, the, the narrative shifts to making him the little red riding hood character so he starts off as the wolf then he becomes a little red riding hood character 
and you find out that this girl is trying to betray him so she is the you know the the the, the wolf that's that that's that's hiding her true identity uh, but then it does this other switch at the very end, and that is where the movie kind of got me. Because before then, it was kind of like, okay, well, this is kind of interesting, but it's long, it's kind of aimless. I'm getting caught, I'm getting distracted by this political stuff that doesn't seem to matter. But then at the end, when you find out that actually he was the wolf the whole time, that's when it got really interesting to me because we had been tricked into thinking that it was just the reverse throughout the whole movie yeah. that he was Red Riding Hood, she was the wolf even though they look like the stereotypical wolf in Riding Hood you know, switched, you know? Uh, but then at the end of the movie, you find out that, no, no, he was actually playing her the whole time to begin with. And the whole point of it was that he has no soul, but he's he's his whole job is to pretend that he does. And the question at the end of the movie is, does he actually have a soul? Because he seems to show remorse and doesn't want to kill her at the end of the movie like he's ordered to. He does anyway. But we're, we're told that basically the human face he had put on was a facade the whole time. Mm -hmm. And the whole question of the movie is, was that true? How much of his humanity does he actually have or has he actually suppressed it? Like we're told. And that's something that I think was kind of confusing with the perspective because there are moments where we get into his head and he is traumatized by this and we see images that kind of continuously haunt him. Yeah. And someone who's not riddled with guilt of what he did would not have these scenes. And so, Joe, you bring an interesting army where he's like, was he completely soulless? Was he completely nonchalant about what he had done? Or did he have some kind of humanity or some kind of compassion for what he had done and maybe that is the question that the director is asking all of us is like you know when we adopt these roles in society to play a part in society to actually function and keep things as they are are we losing something can we retain something i think it he leaves it open-ended like that for that very reason because kind of going back to when we're seeing the parallels with lower riding hood being told throughout it it does something very interesting where it doesn't just cut back to between Fusei and Kai. It cuts back to the people in the city. You know, as she's explaining the story of Lower Riding Hood, we see visuals of this city. We see visuals of people in either destitute situations and well-off situations as law enforcement. And it's almost like this allegory is being applied to them as well. And it's asking, have you guys lost any of your humanity? Are you all still holding on to something? I don't know, that's very long-winded, yeah. but... No, it's good, yeah. We've kept Fusei under surveillance ever since he faced that board of inquiry. From the moment you first made contact with him, we've looked into everything there is to know about you. So then? We let you do what you wanted, without interference. That's what counterintelligence is about. The side that correctly anticipates the other and strikes first has the advantage. They wanted to bring down the special unit, and they chose him as their sacrificial lamb. But they're the ones who have fallen into a trap. I think in the end, I'm not entirely sure what the movie is trying to say. I think the closest I can think of is that it tries to humanize both sides of any confrontation. I mean, there's very obvious uh, Nazi symbolism in the, the the helmets, the the setting of the of the movie, just just where you know, you know what what year it takes place in, mm -hmm. um, and the fact that uh, the main character is essentially a Nazi stand-in, and he is 
at, at, at the core, at least he thinks he's an evil person think, and he thinks that he's doing these heartless things and he's cut out his humanity. But the movie goes to great lengths to show us that that might not actually be the case that, you know, as robotic and wolf-like as these people are, they're still human beings and there's still someone battling good versus evil inside of them. That's the closest I think the movie comes for myself, at least for any sort of meaningful message. But because it goes kind of back and forth between the wolf and the Red Riding Hood allegory, and it does get caught up in kind of this political stuff at some point, I'm not quite sure where I land on this movie uh, theme-wise. And I think, I'll, I think it might take another couple of rewatches. Uh, I don't know when the next time I'll get around to this is, but I think I would need to watch another time or two before I could really settle down on what I think I get out of it or what I think it's trying to say. I think Joe's just kind of bummed that there wasn't actually any werewolves in this. <laughs> there were no actual werewolves. <laughs> no, me knowing nothing about this movie, I thought there was going to be werewolves going in. <laughs> no, no, he was constantly uh, tweeting us or just like messaging us like, there's still no werewolves, I'm this much, still zero stars. <laughs> yeah, for some reason, going into the movie, I, I, uh, I think because I knew absolutely nothing about it going in, except for just the poster and the name, I thought, yeah. oh, it's probably about werewolf soldiers. <laughs> And then it, and about like two minutes in, it became blatantly obvious that, oh, it's not about werewolf soldiers. There's going to be no werewolves in this movie is there. Yeah, like like like, like I would mentioned before, the movie just kind of like takes your expectations, throws them out the window, and it's like, no, we're just doing this now. Which actually would have been kind of interesting if like at the last act, maybe if they brought some werewolves into <laughs> no. it. No, that, that, would, that would not have fit this movie. Not no, it just, become, it just become Overlord then at the very end. God, no. All right, Alex... What do you think of Jinro, and would you recommend it? Absolutely. I'd recommend this right off the bat. Um, it's a very quiet, subtle movie. Um, it play, Like I mentioned, it plays with your expectations, um, and it takes a bit to kind of... It takes some patience to get through. Um, I, I enjoyed it a lot watching it, there's plenty of points where you're really not sure where the movie is going. And, you know, even finishing the film, like we talked about, we don't really know exactly what the point of it all is, what the final message we're, we're supposed to be left with is. But I, I like, I like that aspect of it. I like the kind of ambiguity of it with this being an hour and 40 minutes. I watching it. I felt like it was a lot shorter. I did not feel like this was an hour 40. I felt like it was maybe an hour long. Um, I think it was just kind of I was just so engrossed in in everything that was going on. Um, the dialogue's great. The English dub is fine, by the way. It's I you know I will go back and I'm gonna watch the subtitled version, but the English dub is not a bad option if you absolutely hate subtitles. I would absolutely recommend this. The story's fascinating. Um, the characters are are great, incredible. Um, the soundtrack is also very good as as is the sound design so yeah there's so there's so much about the movie to really get into and really like about it um whether or not you're okay with it taking its time and really exploring the themes and character development slowly will kind of dictate how you know kind of what you really get out of the movie if you know if you did want something that's more action-packed you know if you did want something that was more fast-paced, um, this might not be the option for you. But if you did, but if you are interested in something that's mostly dialogue and mostly slowly paced, 
and thorough in what in what it's getting into. Um, this this can really this is this is really something for you. Then it's a really nice hidden surprise. Nate. All right. So as much as I was like you know commenting about this movie and saying you know there's some good stuff about it, I'm kind of on the fence maybe a bit more on the naysay kind of uh side because i don't know i think going into this i feel like for what this was setting up for the premise it was going with it had a lot of opportunity to do something very bold you know i keep thinking about the guy who who wrote this he was able to do ghost in a shell which is a fantastic piece of animation as well um but that one just there's something about its visuals something about its story even just like its narrative that sticks with you whereas for me for this one unless it was like you know if you say in the capitol police uniform it there wasn't a whole lot that stood out and i think that's the thing with animation is like if you're going to uh you know decide to go in the animation direction you better have a, a visual that or just something that's bold and makes a lasting impression and for me i guess there wasn't that one scene even in the opening, I, I didn't feel like there was that one scene that left a lasting impression. Um, and maybe that's what I was hoping for, you know, for what this is wrestling with. And the fact that it's part of a bigger trilogy, I think I would be much more interested to see all three movies, you know, one after the other and see how they flow into each other um, and see if they all hold up that way. But for this, I think it relies so much on exposition and i think i almost kind of wish it didn't like there's a lot of scenes where they're really just trying to set up the politics and this whole you know war game that's going on and i almost feel like it shouldn't have it should have kind of like as you said let the characters be characters um and i kind of feel like there wasn't enough time or they were so restricted with how the vision of this was in being a live action film that the animation just couldn't lend it anything new or or striking to it and for me as as good as the themes are as good as like what it was trying to do it it didn't do that but i can't say i didn't enjoy it i did get something nice out of it i just wish it could have been something a little bit more daring yeah i i enjoyed this movie i think uh how much i enjoyed it would i, I would need to rewatch it um i'm not entirely sure what it was trying to say but i like that it was a quiet introspective movie i like that it was a movie about characters grappling with moral dilemmas uh it wasn't what i expected but it also has some has, has a couple of couple of moments of well done action in it too uh but don't go into this expecting a, an, an action oriented movie uh so yes I, I i would recommend this uh as long as you know going in that it's not gonna be some you know like uh what, what was it was that one with the titans that anime with the titans Oh, Attack on Titan? No, Attack on Gundam. Titan. That's what I'm thinking of. Oh, or Attack on Titan. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so it's not something like Attack on Titan. It's not something like Full Metal Alchemist. It it, it is a character study. Mm -hmm. uh, just my own thoughts on it. I'm not quite sure where I land on it right now. Uh, but I enjoyed it, and I enjoyed what it was going for, and uh, maybe it it, I mean, I, it has the possibility of jumping up in my esteem in the future. So that will end our episode of the Film Illiterates podcast today. Uh, you can find us on uh, filmilliterates.com, youtube.com slash filmilliterates. Uh, Alex, where can people find you? Yeah, so I'm on, you can watch a bunch of our old episodes of Film Illiterates, as well as a recent one we did on The Lighthouse and our year-end list um, episodes that we did. Um, as for me specifically, you can find me on 
uh, Twitter at Alex B. Patton. You can find me on Rate Your Music if you're interested in what I'm what I'm, I'm listening to under Half Scrim. Uh, same goes for Letterbox and my anime list as well. Nate? Uh, you can find me here on Film Illiterates with these guys doing podcasts and videos. I am also on Instagram at Nathan underscore Stone underscore Films. Um, you can also uh, just follow me on Letterbox. I'm going to get back on that again and just catch up on letting these guys know what I thought about recent movies we saw. Um, but yeah, that's where you can find me. And you can find me at twitter.com slash filmilliterates and on uh, letterboxd.com. My username is film underscore illiterate, where you can catch up on everything I'm watching up to now. I've seen little, little uh, synopsis and uh, little capsule reviews. Uh, next episode, we'll be talking about the Oscars, or should I say, not talking about the Oscars, as it's our second annual Oscars grab bag episode, where we'll be talking about a whole bunch of fun movie-related uh, topics grabbed out of a bag. Yeah, so, so we'll talk about other animes that Alex uh, would recommend to us. <laughs> exactly. We'll be talking about everything movie-related except for the Oscars next episode. <laughs> So keep a lookout for that. And uh, again, all of our episodes can be found on filmliterates.com and youtube.com slash filmliterates. Keep watching movies and keep it easy. <laughs>